Well, we've come to Isaiah chapter 5 again. We looked at it last time. We revisit it today. It was a tough job to be a prophet. Prophets were often called to say uncomfortable things to the people of God. And Isaiah was one of those prophets. And today we see him saying some uncomfortable things to the people of God of his day. According to Ezekiel, one of the later prophets, a vine is either good for fruit or it's good for nothing. And in this chapter, Isaiah delivers a message that uh, he had been delivering round about, a peer, round about a period towards the end of the reign of King Uzziah. We have a record of earlier messages that he'd given. In fact, chapter 2, verse 1 through to chapter, the end of chapter 4 consists of one complete message that he had given to the people. What's interesting about that message is that it's bracketed before and behind by two very positive and wonderful descriptions of what's going to happen in the future, way in the future. As God makes Jerusalem and Judah the center of a world kingdom where people come from all over the world to find out the knowledge of God and to come to know God. That's a great picture that he paints. In the middle of those two bookends of that first message, of course, there's a, there's a, a summary of the situation as it is. Judah and Jerusalem are not in a good place. Israel to the north is not in a good place. The people of God are not where they should be. But bracketing that message are these signals of hope. Now we have a later message. And uh, in chapter 5, that message is one. It's a description of Israel as a vineyard. You can see the the explanation in verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Judah and the men of Judah, or of Israel rather, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. God had created Israel. He had brought them out of Egypt. He had redeemed them by a mighty hand. He had taken them through the desert and given them his law. He had made a covenant with them. He had pledged himself to be God to them. He had told them what his requirements were as their covenant Lord and Master. And they would sworn to him. They would sworn concerning the law. All these things we will do. All these things we will do. And then under Joshua, they were brought into the promised land. And none of those things did they do. They disobeyed him. From the very beginning, they disobeyed him. Hundreds of years, centuries have passed. And they've been disobeying him. Oh, yes, there were high points. There were gloriously high points. The reign of David, the most significant of all. But even during the reign of Uzziah... There had been high points in their religious life, in their corporate life together as the covenant people of God. And it was Isaiah's job as a prophet to go to these people in that place and deliver the Lord's message to them, not to get too tied up with the place because they were going to lose the place. God was coming. And he was coming to bring judgment upon the house of God, first of all. Now we saw that, beginning of that, in last week in the beginning of this chapter. Now we're going to look at his 
evidence for the case that he's brought against Israel and particularly Jerusalem and Judah. There are in this chapter six woes, that is laments, about what is going on among the people of God. There will be a seventh lament in chapter six, but we'll save that up for another occasion. There's an, an initial assessment that he makes as we see in verses 8 to 17. The first two wars or laments deal with the abuse of the benefits that God has given to his people Israel. The first of them actually has to do with the land itself. Do you notice that in verse 8? Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room and you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Don't misunderstand this. This is not God crying out against property tycoons and property developers. You'll be glad to know, those of you who own properties and rent them out. This is not God's indictment of you. No, this is an indictment of God's own covenant people. The land that God had given them was God's land. He gave it to them as tenants in God's land. He had prescribed that every family of Israel should have a little part of the territory. It was parceled out to every family of Israel so that there would be a perpetual reminder among the people of God that God had called them out of Egypt and that God's intention was ultimately to give them the new earth as his gift and as their inheritance. That little bit of real estate that God gave to their family to look after and to care for was a reminder that God's intention ultimately was to bring the world into the family of God. In fact, that was why the land had to be handed on from generation to generation along family lines. And even if you became very poor and had to sell the land in order to raise some money, it was bound, the family was bound at some point to buy the land back so that it remained in that family line. Not only would this mean that there would be no permanent underclass in Israel, but it would be a reminder of their allegiance to God and what they owed God. They were tenants in God's vineyard. Jesus picks that language up in Matthew 21. Now what, what Isaiah is crying out about is that there were people who were forgetting their brotherly responsibilities. They were not loving one another. They were thinking only of themselves. They were finding people who were weak and fragile financially, and they were pouncing, and they were taking their property and giving them a pittance, as it were, in return, and they were keeping the property. They were acquiring more and more of land that was the Lord's land. And they were keeping it for themselves. They're driven by covetousness. But in particular, they are hurting the people of God. And they are defying the law of God. Not only that, but there are others. You notice the second woe, verse 11. There were others who were intent on pursuing pleasure. Not just in pursuing property, but pursuing pleasure. 
Uh, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, and who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. He's talking here, by the way, you notice, he's not opposing wealth as such, nor is he opposing pleasure as such, but he is describing lives that are characterized by a pursuit of wealth and pleasure that have become all-consuming, all-absorbing, and have robbed these people of their sensitivity towards God and towards their brothers and sisters within the covenant community. They've lost that. These party animals have no longer any idea that God is at work among them or in the world. Their passion for pleasure has stifled their passion for God. How does this apply to us as New Covenant believers? Well, it applies to us this way. That we are driven either by the Spirit or by the senses. In the New Testament, the word for the senses is the flesh. Fleshly sensibility is driven by self-pleasing. When we make ourselves in a thousand ways the center of the world. When in our everyday lives, in our relationships with people, and in church, in our relationship with what goes on in church, we are driven not by the things of God and the centrality of Christ and by the need of the Spirit, but we come in and we say effectively, please, please me. Oh God, what have you got for me today? What marvelous program have you got that will entertain my senses today? Whether it's my desire for pleasure or desire for the influences of the world. These senses were inflamed. And uh, uh, in the church today, the fleshly sensibility seeks entertainment and is driven by pleasing myself, whereas spiritual sensitivity is driven by pleasing God and is drawn to genuine worship, which is from the heart. Well, in verses 13 to 17, the the prophet spells out the implications. Because they've been preoccupied with property and pleasure, because they do not regard, look at verse 12, the the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. In other words, they, they have no longer any spiritual insight, no longer any spiritual perception. They're part of God's people. They gather with God's people. They worship with God's people. But they only see the veneer. They see the exterior. They see what we would call the accidents of worship. That is, the external things that we look at when we're looking at public worship. But they did not see beyond that to the heart of worship. They did not see, he says, the deeds of the Lord or the works of His hands. And here's what he warns. He warns Judah and Jerusalem. Listen to this. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. That is spiritual insight, spiritual knowledge. And instead of this abundance, they're going to go hungry. And the ground will be parched. And Sheol, that place of personal distance from God, has enlarged its appetite like a, and opened its mouth, pulling multitudes, not only the nobility but the ordinary people as well, who are bought into the same kind of philosophy. Everybody sucks, Sheol sucks them into its vortex 
of despair and destruction and death. Here's Isaiah, and he's looking at the people of God, and he's saying to them, You love this place. You honor this place. You know God's given you this place. You see this place almost as the indicator of what you are and who you are in the world. You, you equate who you are as the people of God by this bit of real estate, this bit of land on which you are standing or sitting and living. But here's what the Lord says. Listen. He's going to take it away from them. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Here's Isaiah announcing to the people of Jerusalem and Judah that they're going to be extracted from their land. They're going to lose their place, precious though it was, because they haven't obeyed God while living in that place or serving in that place. You see, this was God's great charge against the people of God. In verse 16, we have a statement that summarizes what it is for God to be truly God. It isn't His immense power, nor is it His mysterious essence. It is that God is essentially just and righteous. Glance back to verse 8 for a moment. What is the charge against the house of Israel and the men of Judah? God comes looking for justice and doesn't find it. He looks for righteousness. He doesn't find it. He comes to his church. He looks for justice and righteousness. He doesn't find it. But listen to what it says in verse 16. The Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, is exalted in justice. The holy God shows himself holy in his righteousness. This is a key verse in the unfolding understanding of who God is. Israel had already been taught that God is holy in the sense that his being is utterly different from our being. That he is apart from them. They are creatures. God is the creator. Israel had already learned that God is distant from them in the mystery of his person and his work. God is greater than they are. He is apart from us. He is above us. But now Isaiah is saying, understand this, what makes God holy is not only that He is so great and we are not, that He is the Creator and we are creatures. What makes God holy is that in His character, in His being, in His essence, He is blisteringly just and righteous. He will not stand injustice and He will not stand unrighteousness among His own chosen people. He is a holy God. He has a moral nature that sets him against us because he is holy and we are unholy. He is perfect, we are imperfect. He is God and we are sinners. And you know, this vision of the holiness of God is captured by one of our hymn writers who speaks about the holiness of God as the eternal light, the blistering light of God's presence. Eternal light, eternal light, how pure the soul must be that shrinks not, 
but with calm delight can live and look on thee. The spirits that surround thy throne can bear the burning bliss, but that is surely theirs alone, for they have never, never known a fallen world like this. How can I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on my naked spirit bear the uncreated beam? There is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, a Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. These, these prepare us for the sight of holiness above. The sons of ignorance and night can dwell in the, in the eternal light through the eternal love. That's the gospel. It's only the gospel makes men and women able to exist in the presence of a holy God. Oh, you notice that he then goes on in verse 18 to give an in-depth analysis of these wild grapes. Actually, in the original, the, the word is stink fruit. Water those, he says, who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sinners with cart ropes. There's a progression downwards here, by the way. They start off in their guilt and their sin, the wrongdoing, are just peripheral little things, little, you know, tiddling little bits of sin kind of thing. They're not very, they're not very heavy or great or bad, and you can draw them with just a little cord. But as time has gone by, those little frittery things have become heavy. They've become so heavy that they need cart ropes to drag their, their shame and their guilt and their disobedience behind them on their way. And the more disobedient they've come, the more cynical they've become. They've listened to the prophet Isaiah, and they've listened to Isaiah as he's described these two great visions in chapter 2 and chapter 4 of the great future God has for the people of God. And they've listened to this message. They've ignored the centerpiece, by the way, of the message, and they've listened to the bookends. They probably dozed during that part of Isaiah's sermon, like some of you do. And so they were remembering the positive stuff, and they're, they're saying to Isaiah, well, come on, tell God to bring it on. God said he'll do X and Y and Z. Well, dear God, we, we're ready for you to act. We want you to do that now. No, don't, don't talk to us about all this other stuff. We want God to produce the goods. Let him be quick, they say. Let him speed his work that we may see it. We want to see this. You say you're representing God and God is going to do this and this? Well, we want to see it. We want God to come and accomplish His will. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we might know it. In other words, what are they saying? They're saying they're using the right name for God, Yahweh. They recognize that He is the Holy One of Israel. But they're arrogantly daring God to act. They're treating God as if he was a genie in the bottle. Give it a rub, and out he'll pop, and do whatever you want him to do. He wanted, they wanted him, God, to fulfill their hopes, obey their commands, soothe their ego, protect their comfort, serve their needs. They didn't want him as a judge. But Isaiah hasn't finished with them yet. Look at verse 20. There are reversed values. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. 
You may never have done this because you're all very upright people. But some of you might remember as you were children, when you were children going into one of these great stores, perhaps you went with your mother. That's a very boring experience, I know. And you're left there twiddling your thumbs while she is going through sheaves and sheaves of clothes, you know, and shoes probably, and uh, accumulating them with a massive amount. So much so that extra rooms have to be created for the shoes and that kind of thing. And, and there you are, and uh, just because you're bored, you swap price tags over. Ever done that? No. I'm sure I haven't done it either, but there, there you go. But that's actually the picture that's being painted there in, uh, in verse 20. They were changing the tags. Do you know it's a feature of the diminution of moral awareness that we don't see evil as evil anymore. We don't see sin as sin anymore. You can talk about it, but it, but it kind of washes over us. There's, there's no sense of moral revulsion to sin. We change the name tags. We call good evil and evil good. That's happening all over our society today, but it's also happening in the church today. We are reversing the labels. And what this leads is, notice verse 21, this leads to a false confidence. Woe to those who are wise in their own sight. It all starts with our human assertion of autonomy. As far as we are concerned, as far as the individual is concerned, the individual believer who's got themselves into this state, they can rationalize, they can explain, they can excuse, they can find reasons for their behavior that avoids the label sin. They are wise in their own eyes. You see, sin is clever. It always brings reasons, arguments, because it knows us so well. We like to think of ourselves as intelligent people. So it's no use the devil coming along and saying, just go and do it, just go and do this. No, no, he has to come along and he has to give us reasons. Why would we do this? Because it's good. You know, it's a good thing. It's a pleasant thing. It is the right thing. In fact, we're doing other people a, a, lot of, a lot of good rather than harm by doing what we want to do. The devil's reasoning is always false reasoning. And then in verses 22 and 23, we see kind of personal escapism. Who, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his, of his right. You see the biting sarcasm of the prophet here. He's not just talking, by the way, to the upper class. He's talking to the whole nation here. You're such big men. You're such bold men. You're great. You're great propping up the bar. And while you're propping up the bar, what are you doing? You are acquitting the guilty. And you are depriving the innocent of their right. God is passionate, do you notice, for justice and righteousness. You're so good and you're so great and you're so special and you're so full of yourself. You're propping up the bar while at the same time you're doing these things that are unrighteous. Twisting the law to deprive the weak of their legal protection. This is not, by the way, addressing civil rights primarily, though, of course, the world could learn from the civil rights that were practiced in ancient Israel and should be practiced in the church today. 
It is referring primarily to that divine order of justice established by God for his chosen people. And at the end of the day, Isaiah's charge is simply this. They have rejected the law of Yahweh. They have rejected the word of the Holy One of Israel. Now, can you imagine this happening to a church? Can you imagine this happening to the people of God? To a people redeemed by a mighty hand who'd seen the protection of God over all of their natural life together. And here is God through the prophet saying to them, Time's up. Because the third section of this chapter from verse 25 describes the sovereign God. The flow of the passage is this. God has been gracious. The early verses, he has chosen Israel. He has given Israel a land. He has asked the question, what more could I do? What more could be done? What more could be done? Is there anything I left out? Anything I didn't give them? Any provision that I didn't make for them? I've given them this place. I've placed them in this place. I've provided for them all that they needed for life and godliness. And what have they produced? Stink fruit. So in verse 25, we have a description of the God who is sovereign over nature itself. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. Notice that. He stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all his, this, his anger was not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The created world, in all its complexity and splendor and ferocity, is just a tool in the hand of the sovereign God of Israel. We need to remind ourselves that the created order, the natural forces are in the hands of God and He can use them against us. He can use them against His church. He can use them against the nations. But He's not only sovereign over nature, He's sovereign over history. Isaiah ends with a statement about God's absolute sovereignty over history. The story for these people was going to be this. He tells them, look at verse 26. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. Here Isaiah is getting into prophet mode, talking most likely about, first of all, the Assyrians. The Assyrians were going to come sweeping down, destroy Israel, and make inroads into Judah. But he's also talking about the Babylonians, who would be the next lot who would come along. And beyond them, the Romans, who would come along in Jerusalem and Judah, would be turned to dust and ashes. Look at the picture. God will raise a signal for nations far off, other Gentile nations. He'll whistle for them from the ends of the earth. When I was growing up, my dad worked shifts and worked long hours in back-breaking conditions. And uh, when he came home from work, 
he would go and sit down in his favorite chair in the living room. And I tell you not, this was choreographed down to fine art. My father's bottom had no sooner touched the seat of his chair that my mother was placing a tray with his dinner on his lap. It was the most wonderfully choreographed, seamless operation. His two boys wondered perhaps mom would do that for them. She never did that for them. And in fact, she taught us that we must never do that with our wives. But she said, he is the goose that lays the golden egg. And and she had all kinds of rationale for what, for what she did. And I remember, I remember there were times when there wasn't enough salt on the food. And what he would do is he would whistle. <laughs> and there she would be in there like, like nothing else. Christine never let me do that. <laughs> I'll tell you one caveat to this, by the way, that when he retired, the day he retired, I don't think my mother ever, ever prepared a meal after that. Seriously, he did all the cooking. From the moment he retired, he spoiled her. I know. But I, okay, here's the relevance of that. For this, look. Verse 26. Focus, focus, focus. Try verse 26. Here's the picture of the sovereign Lord sending us for nations far off and whistling. I mean... It's almost like, you know, he doesn't have to get up off his throne. He just whistles. And the nations, these great powerful nations, Assyria, Babylon, Rome, come at his sovereign bidding. And they come to accomplish his will. He is going to exile his people. He's going to take the land away, the place away from them. They're going to lose it. And even though a few of them will come back from Babylon to Jerusalem, it's never theirs again. It belongs to the Persians and then to the Greeks and then to the Romans. And, and then in AD 70, the Romans finally scatter them to the ends of the earth. They never, ever get it all back. They haven't even got it all back today. The exile was to be a permanent state. That's when Jesus, why, when Jesus comes, he comes to bring his people to the promised land. The picture that Isaiah paints is of a mighty army thundering down on Israel and Judah like the armies of Mordor, like a huge military machine destroying all in its wake. They bring with them the harbinger of the final judgment that will draw everyone and everything into its vortex at the end of history. But, uh, but Isaiah underlines it's the Lord who's in charge. The Lord's in charge. The Holy One of Israel merely whistles and the nations obey Him. The early Christians found that a great comfort. Even though it's a warning of judgment, they found it a comfort because when they saw evil men taking their Savior and having Him killed and executed on a Roman cross, they understood that even these evil men doing their own evil will were accomplishing what God's eternal plan and purpose had determined should come to pass. God is sovereign over the nations. Isaiah's teaching is consistent with the rest of the Bible. What does God want to see among his people? He wants to see among his people 
fruit. A professing Christian whose life shows no appreciable difference over the long term is a kind of monster. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto, towards, for good works. He writes to Titus, the grace of God has appeared to bring salvation to all people and to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and create people zealous for good works. Jesus, when he picks up this idea of the vineyard and he says to his own people, the church, I am the true vine, I'm the genuine article, I'm the real Israel. You are the branches. Each branch in me that doesn't bear fruit will be taken away. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he will prune that it might bring forth more fruit. What is the great business God is doing with us? Well, Sunday by Sunday, as we use the means of grace, the Word of God is meant to wash us, to clean us, to to change us, to affect us, to disinfect us. Jesus said to the disciples, you are clean through the Word that I spoke to you. He later goes on to say, when I abide in you, when I remain in you, and my words remain in you, then you'll be shown to be my disciples. Paul says we have to let the Word of Christ dwell in us, Make its home in us so that it begins to shape the way we look at the world, shape the way we think about what's going on in the world, and be changed into His image more and more. How do I become more fruitful? Through the Word of God. But sometimes God is to use other means. God was to use the exile to punish Israel, to punish Judah and Jerusalem, But also he used it as a means of chastising the true believers within the community. Producing in them a greater sense of God. A sense that they were living under the eye of God. A sense that they were doing all that they did in their lives, conscious that God was looking. That in their corporate life together, They were not just looking at one another, but they were looking primarily towards the throne of God above. Jesus says the Father can do this even with us. Prune us. Use the world to chastise the church. Isn't that an amazing thought? At the time of the Reformation, it was uh, Martin Luther who referred to the incoming wave of Islamic power from the East towards Europe. And he referred to Islam as the rod of God against an unholy church. It is biblical teaching that God reigns in Christ over the nations for the sake of His covenant people. And at any moment He can use the nations, in the New Testament, the world, as a way of chastising His people for their unbelief 
for their unholiness and their ungodliness and their unrighteousness. Isaiah has to look these people in the eye and say, you're going to lose this place. But God is going to take it from you so that he can do something in you. Something more radical, more fundamental, more true inside you, in your heart and in your life. God uses the world to chastise the church. Isn't that the story of Europe? The virtual extinction of the Huguenots in France. The driving out of massive populations from Holland and Scotland and England of believing people. The spread of ungodly liberal theology starting in Germany influenced by the philosophies of France bought into by people in Britain and America and the 20th century 50 years that brought millions of deaths to Europe Sometimes God uses the world to punish the church. To say to his people, you don't know what you've got. You don't know what I've given you. You have no idea the enormity of what it means for the church to depart from its God, my people. To fly in the face of their God. It's a call to the church to wake up. And it's true for our own individual lives that God sometimes has to cut away things to make us more holy. Amy Carmichael puts it like this. What prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the bare stems bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp steel. But with a tried and trusted gardener, there is not a random stroke in it all. Nothing cut away that it would not have been loss to keep and gain to lose. Now, I wonder how that applies to the church in America, the church in the world, to our church, and to our individual lives. What is he to cut away that it would not be lost to keep and gain, spiritual gain, to lose? Let's pray. Father, we can just talk for a moment as individuals and ask that you would help us to abide in Jesus, as he says in that great picture of the vine and the branches, to put our roots deep into him, to press into him, to earnestly 
want to be surrounded and fed and nurtured by his life and by his life alone. We come, Lord, all of us as sinners, but those who need your grace, and pray that you would produce the fruit that would glorify your name. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.